Oh, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Let me ask you a question. What is the dominant principle of your life? I mean, what drives you through the day? What motivates you? What is, you know, just on your mind and on your heart? What is that dominant principle for you? Is it money? Is it career? Is it children? Is it success? Is it significance? Or is it something different? Welcome back to our series. We're in a series called The Road Less Traveled. And in this series, we're talking about that very call in our lives to live lives differently than the world. And what we've seen is Robert Frost said in 1920 when he wrote this poem, he said, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference, you know. And we do. We come to a crossroads in our life where we go, I mean, can go the way of the world. And the way of the world is glamorous and it's glitzy and it's pursuing the American dream. And it's all about, you know, success and how much stuff can I amass. Or I hear from a Savior, a still small voice, come, follow me. And Jesus calling and inviting us to be a part of what he's doing and giving our lives meaning, giving our lives purpose, giving our lives joy and peace. Come, follow me. And what life will we live? Which way will we go? In our series, we're walking verse by verse through a great book in the Bible. It's the book of 1 Corinthians. We're unpacking the word of God. It's so deep and it's so rich. It's so good. And the apostle Paul is on a mission trip and he comes to Corinth. And there in the city of Corinth, right, he's leading people to Jesus. And you got the synagogue ruler and his family who come to know Christ. They're baptized. And a lot of influential people. And the church is growing and it's dynamic. And it reminds me so much of what God's doing here at Rolling Hills. You know, lives are being changed and transformed for his glory. Last week, I had the privilege to be at South Nashville. You know, we started a new campus at South Nashville, and and we started in January. And so I was over there, and last Sunday, we had our first baptisms. And it was so exciting, you know. And and here was Matt, and he was baptized at the 930 service. And, And Matt and his family moved with Nissan about eight years ago, and they opened up their North American headquarters here and moved from California. And And he started coming to church about four years ago. And he came like right as we were in just finishing up in the movie theater. And and Matt, I remember going to lunch with Matt and and sitting down and Matt goes, you know, I'm just trying to figure this whole thing out, right? This whole Jesus thing, this whole church thing. He goes, just don't ever ask me to be baptized, okay? And I'm like, okay, no worries. That's that's the power of God. I can't do anything about that, you know? And so here he was, you know, last Sunday, four years later, being baptized right there. And his wife sitting there, his two older sons, one in college, one in high school. And they're just so proud of their dad. It was so awesome. At ninth, at the 11 o'clock service, there was a guy, Greg, and a guy in our church, Jerry, had invited Greg and his daughter to come to the daddy-daughter ball. And they came last year to the daddy-daughter ball. And here's this guy, his young 30s, married with a child. And he just said there was something different. There was something different about the people there. And he started praying and reading. And he emailed and said, hey, tell me more about Christianity. I didn't grow up knowing Jesus. I didn't have a relationship with him. And he gives his life to Christ. And so last Sunday when he was baptized and he comes up out of the water. And his six-year-old daughter comes over and she puts her arms around him. And after the service, I said, what did your daughter say? And he said, she just looked at me and said, Daddy, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. He goes, you know what? I'm going to be there when she gets baptized one day. 
And I said, yeah, it's impacting generations. It's awesome. And I was so excited just to see God moving and God working. And you think about that church there. And you think about back in that time and the church here and what God's doing. And, and as we talk through these things, God is moving and God is working through his word in our lives. And we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And that's the call for us. And church, I want to tell you that I'm proud of you. I am, because as we've walked through 1 Corinthians, there's been some hard passages we've been unpacking, right? I mean, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, I mean, we've been dealing with sexual immorality, we've been talking about marriage, divorce, we've been talking about being single, we've been talking about how to live in relationship, and and we've been digging into the Word, and it's so good. I remember being in seminary, when I was in seminary, I had a professor, Dr. Jack McGorman, and Dr. McGorman, he was like one of the leading theologians and biblical scholars. And I took in a whole class on 1 Corinthians. And this guy was like in his 80s, I think, when I took his class. And he was from Scotland. And he would say, aye, lads. You know, it's my best Scottish accent. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. But aye, lads. He said, you know, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, they're so tough. And they're difficult. But they prepare you for the beauty that is coming in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and 15. And we'd be like, yeah, we're ready, you know, for <laughs> the beauty of it. So, so I want to tell you I'm proud of you guys. And, and all of us in all of our relationships, you know, there's areas of our lives that we look back on and we've made mistakes, right? And there's areas that we look back on and so many times Satan comes and he gets in our mind. And he says, well, you remember when? You know, you remember what you did then. You remember this pornography. You remember this thing. And all the time, that's just those, that stirring in our mind. At any time we get serious about God, it's like Satan just uses that in our lives. Well, you failed at this and this. And I want to tell you, if I could say anything as we finish up 5, 6, and 7, just say this. Go forward in grace. Don't go forward in guilt. That was the old nature, you know. Behold, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You are called to live in grace. And when Satan comes and tries to disqualify you, just say, get behind me, Satan. I am a new creation. And I'm living in grace. And I'm learning and I'm going forward in Christ. God has a great plan for you. God wants you to succeed. God wants your marriage to succeed. God wants your relationships to succeed. And God says, go forward in Christ. Just remember grace and live in the grace of God. Wow, praise be to him. So this morning we're going forward from 1 Corinthians 7 into 1 Corinthians 8. So if you have a Bible with you today, I invite you up with me to 1 Corinthians New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, then Acts and Romans, and then 1 and 2 Corinthians. Maybe you have a mobile device with you. You can access the scriptures online and pull that up. Uh, You can also take notes there in the worship guide. And then we'll put the words on the screen so you can follow along with what God's word has to say. So the Apostle Paul starts off, right? The Apostle Paul has been in Corinth. He was there for about 18 months, helping the church, growing the church there. He's left. He's gone over to Ephesus on his mission trip. And now the people are writing notes to him and saying, hey, we're young Christians living in Corinth. And Corinth, remember, was a very immoral place to live. I mean, you know. They had these temples to Aphrodite and all these pagan temples there. And so there's a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of temple prostitutes. Uh, they, you know, it was all about money and affluence back then. It was a very wealthy city. It was a Greek city. So lots of knowledge and debate and rhetoric. And so they wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, they said, what about, you know, marriage? What does that look like? And as you come to chapter 8, they write this to Paul. They says, now about food sacrificed to idols. About food sacrificed to idols. 
See, here's what they were dealing with. These young Christians were struggling because back then people would go to the pagan temples and they would cut themselves and have orgies and do all this stuff in these pagan temples. They would offer this burnt sacrifice. And so the sacrifice was then cooked and the meat was sold in the marketplace. And you could get a good deal on it. And so the Christians are going, okay, we used to buy this meat, you know, when we were pagan and we were far from God. But now we know that there's one God. So should we buy the meat or not buy the meat? Because it was sacrificed to a pagan God. I mean, what do we do? And then you got to think about this. They were a lot of influential people. So they're getting invited to all these parties, right? And they're going over to their friend's house. And they're going over for different holidays and different times. And their friends are serving food sacrificed to idols. And these Christians are like, I don't know about that. And what do I do? I mean, how, what do I, what should I do? So they write Paul and say, Paul, what do you think? You know, is this a big deal or not? We know it was sacrificed to a pagan God and we don't worship that God. Do we, do we eat or not? And I love what Paul does here. It's kind of like a loving parent. You know, he kind of lays it out. He goes, okay, well, I'll let you decide, but let me just lay out some ideas, some things to think about. And then you make that decision. And I think this is so powerful. I think it's so relevant for us as we unpack the word of God today. But he begins with this basis, this foundation. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he says, when you get ready to make this decision, I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about knowledge. It's okay, right? But I also want you to think about love. And so he compares and he contrasts knowledge and love. Now, if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to unpack that in just a couple of weeks, in the most beautiful chapter in all the Bible, you know, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. So Paul says, let me just tell you real quick, it's one thing to have the knowledge, but it's a greater thing to have the love. The dominant value of your life should be love. Should be love. Now you remember it's the church in Corinth that's writing. So when Paul is addressing this, he's addressing this to believers. He's addressing this to people who are Christians, who are followers of Christ. And he's saying, you've got a predominant value in your life and it should be love. Love God and love others. Now in scripture, right, scripture doesn't measure spiritual growth by knowledge. Scripture measures spiritual growth by love. See, what happens a lot of times in the Western United States, right? We, we kind of measure spiritual growth by knowledge. Well, you know, I know this book of the Bible or I've been to this many Bible studies and so I'm this mature. But yet when you look at scripture, it says, hey, you love. And the measure is how much more are you loving God? How much are you loving people? Are you giving yourself to people? And so there's this dichotomy. Knowledge puffs up. Guys, we know that, right? I mean, sometimes we get in debates about our sports teams or our cars or whatever else, you know. It's like, well, you know, Michael Jordan's better than LeBron. And, you know, you just kind of feel people puffing up. You know, knowledge puffs up, but it says love builds up. Love is the response that we should have. And do you realize that we have brothers and sisters in Christ today, like throughout the world, who, who they're walking to church because they love God and they just want to worship. They're like, I, I don't care. I've got to be there. I've got to worship. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who love their families, but they love Jesus so much. They're going to tell their family member about Jesus 
Because they want to see Christ changing their lives. And they know by telling their family member or their friend about Jesus that they could be arrested and taken to jail and killed. There's actually more martyrs for the Christian faith today than at any other time in history. But what drives them? Love, right? In the spiritual depth or the spiritual maturity is measured not simply in knowledge, but in love. And so he says out of this basis, think about this, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. See, it's one thing to say, I know God, right? In the book of James, it says, do you believe in God? Good. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. I mean, you know, it's one thing, there is a God. I mean, you can just look at the world and go, okay, this didn't just happen. I mean, there is a God. We know that. But he says, you take it to a next step. Do you love God? Do you have a relationship with God? And how do you have a relationship with God? Through Jesus Christ, his son, right? As God draws you to himself, he invites you into this relationship and you receive Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. That Christ died for my sins, my past, my present, my future. That I'm redeemed. I am saved. I enter into a love relationship. Not religion, but a relationship. So he says now, so then, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, right, little g in quotations, and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul starts off, he goes, guys, we know. I mean, we know what's going on at that pagan temple. It doesn't really make a difference, right? They're cutting themselves. They're in orgies. It's not doing anything because that God doesn't exist. We know there is one God, the sovereign Lord. We know that, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and we are no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge." When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So what's Paul saying? He's like, maybe it's okay for you. You're a mature believer. It it doesn't bother you. But now you are called to operate out of love. Not only how does this impact me, but how does this impact others? How does this impact a weaker believer? So he says, if it's okay for you and you go to an idol temple and you're participating because it doesn't matter to you, but then somebody sees you, And they all of a sudden are going, well, maybe it's okay. Maybe I can be a believer and go worship pagan idols, you know? Okay, Paul says, you've got a greater responsibility. You've got a greater responsibility. See, there's two things that we we have to have. There's a tension, right? There's the tension between moral relativism, which just says, do whatever you want. It's no big deal, right? There are things that are wrong. There are things that are wrong in this world. There is sin. But there's also something called legalism, (laughs) Legalism. And some of you, you grew up in a legalistic home. Or you grew up in a legalistic church. And I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. I mean, that's not the way it should be. Right? You grew up and it was always don't. Don't, 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 don't
don't ask why, you know, just don't, just don't, 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 don't. And you grew up with that, right? It was like, don't, you know, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't play cards, you don't go to movies, you just don't. And you're like, really? I mean, is that in the Bible? I mean, <laughs> like, don't ask that question, right? I mean, you're going, well, I remember Jesus turned water into wine. Like, yeah, but, you know, I'm a, was an alcoholic, you know? It's like, really? No, it was. I mean, he turned water into wine. I mean, Jesus drank wine. It, it was so, I mean, don't smoke. That's not in the Bible, okay? Don't play cards. Not in the Bible, right? Don't go to movies. Not in the Bible. But you kind of grow up with this don't, 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 don't. And it was so oppressive, right? I mean, the legalism is just oppressive and it's wrong. It's all about laws and do's and don'ts. And you're going, ugh. Do you realize that there's 613 laws in the Old Testament? 613. 613 laws in the Old Testament. You know what Jesus did? He took it and he boiled it down to two. What were the two? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus took it all and he boiled it down to two. Love. Here you go. You want me to boil it down? Here he goes. Love. You just love. You love God and you love others. Isn't that awesome? St. Augustine said this. Love God and do whatever you want. It's pretty powerful, right? Love God and do whatever you want. We, we weren't created to live under legalism. But <laughs> the Apostle Paul comes back and he says, here's what I want you to balance. I want you to balance freedom and responsibility. I want you to balance freedom and responsibility. Just because you are free to do something doesn't mean that maybe you should always do it. Right? Just because you have this freedom, there's also a responsibility. On this coming Tuesday, I'm leaving with a team from our church to go to Moldova. Right? They're the poorest, smallest country in the former Soviet Union. And we have a mission team there right now. And I'm leaving, leading another team from our church. And we love the people of Moldova. I mean, we've been there for, for years, ever since we started the church. We work in 11 different orphanages. And over 300 plus kids are being sponsored by you, church, you know orphan children. We, we just love it. Well, over in Moldova, there's a different culture there. And so we're here in the United States. It's no big deal to go out, you know, and have a stogie with a buddy or have a beer with a buddy. Over there, it's a big deal. And so we say, if you're on a mission trip and we're going to Moldova, we just ask that you refrain from smoking or from drinking because that is a stumbling block for them. You see, you can say, hey, I've got the freedom to do it. Yeah, you've got the freedom to do it. But there's also a greater responsibility. Does that make sense? You see, if I were sitting up here today and I was teaching and I had a beer right here and I'm just kicking back and I'm just going, woo, yeah, man, you know, this is like, some of you would be uncomfortable, right? Some of you are like, wow, that's different, you know, I mean, that, that would be just like kind of puts you on edge. Now, do I have the freedom to do that? Yeah, I'm above age, right? I'm above age. The Bible just says, don't get drunk. So as long as I'm not up here getting drunk, getting slammed, I mean, pounding a few back, you know, I mean, I'm like, you know, as long as I'm keeping that in proportion and saying, I have the freedom to do that. But I also know that I'm a pastor, right? I also know that I have a higher calling and a higher calling to love, a higher calling to love. And I could be a stumbling block to somebody else. When I go out with my friends, I have a, I have a lot of godly, amazing friends and we'll go out and they'll have, you know, a glass of wine for dinner. It's fine. They'll have a margarita for Mexican food. That's it's totally fine. But I know that there's a responsibility here. I, I know that if you invited somebody to church and you've been praying for them and walking with them and we're in a restaurant and I'm just going to town and they walk in, they're like, really? You know, that, there's something that happens there. 
I also know that people struggle with alcoholism. And how do I know if my actions are going to lead them down that path? So Jesus says, you've got a responsibility. And that's not for everybody. But I know that's an area in my life. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we were meeting at the movie theater, right, as a church. And we met there for five years. We used to pray all the time for the managers and for the ushers. And, and people would come. They would line up on the sides in the morning since we're doing church. And they've got their uniforms on, getting ready for the day. But they would come in to listen. And we were always praying, and, and, and there were some that started to come to church, and it was great. And when they would get off on Sunday, some of them still come over here. They want to be here, which is great. But there was, a, there was one manager, her name was Connie. And Connie didn't like us a whole lot, you know, because she had to get up at 6 a.m. and open the theater. She wasn't a believer, right? And she didn't understand all this stuff. And we're bringing in all these things into the theater, you know, baby beds and carpets and all this but we kept praying for Connie. We kept praying for Connie. And we would just pray for her. And, and we saw her soften. We saw her start to have, you know, kind of, tell me a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more. And we were watching God work in her life. Well, one night, Lisa and I were on a date. We had a date night. And we were out with another couple. And we decided, hey, we had dinner. We were, let's go to the movies. So we went to the movies. And we got there. And we, were, we hadn't figured out what movie we were going to watch, right? And so we walk in. And there's Connie. And she goes, what movie are you all going to see? And we were looking at the movies and we were trying to decide. And then she said, well, I know you're not going to see that one because you're a pastor and that's rated R. I'm like, yeah, you're right. We're not going to see that one, are we, right? I mean, that's not... Now, I could have said, Connie, are you serious? I'm over 17. You know, here's my ID. You know, Connie, I live under grace. Come on. You know, I could do that. I could say, you know what, in my past, have I seen a rated R movie? Yes, you know, I could have played that card, but I didn't. I said, you're right, we're going to go see this movie. We had made a decision, it didn't matter to me which movie we were going to see. What mattered, though, was not being a stumbling block for her. So my decision then is made out of love. It comes a responsibility there. And you start to look at these things and what the Apostle Paul is saying to them and what I believe God's saying to us, is you make a decision out of love. You allow the Holy Spirit to come, and if the Holy Spirit says, fine, that's okay, it's no big deal, then that's okay. But, but maybe there's a conviction there. Maybe you start to say, you know, as a parent, as a grandparent, what kind of an example am I setting? There's little eyes that are watching me. What am I doing? I, you know, is it wrong to have a bunch of movie channels in your house? No. Does there come a responsibility at some point, maybe, that you just need to think about, hmm, is it wrong to buy a lottery ticket? No. Is it wrong to go to Vegas and go gambling? No. Just please set a limit. There's a reason they're all big hotels. You're not going to win. Let me just tell you long term, okay? I mean, it's simple math. Please, please, please. I mean, this just comes down to the point where you say, I've got freedom, but there's responsibility. I've got freedom, but there's responsibility. So Paul says, ends in verse 13, right? He goes, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Right? If what, if what I do in my life is going to cause a brother to sin, I'll never go to a radar movie again. I mean, whatever it is in your life, I think God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will say to you, say to me, You've got a higher call. You've got a higher responsibility. We all have weaknesses, don't we? We all have weaknesses. And maybe you have a friend who, man, there's just a weakness in their life toward pornography or to lust. You don't call them up and say, hey, come over and let's watch the Game of Thrones. I mean, you don't do that. You respond out of love. You respond out of grace. The Apostle Paul, as he moves into chapter 9, he uses himself as an example. He says, am I not free? 
Paul goes, come on. I mean, look at me. Am I not free? I can do whatever I want, right? Love God and do whatever I want. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul's going, I spent 18 months with you. I poured my life into you. You understand who I am. And this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us to, to do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? You see, a lot of people believe that Paul was married at one point. You may remember that if you go back, his name was Saul. And before he met Jesus, that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. And to be a part of the Sanhedrin in Jewish law, you had to be married. And so Saul was probably married. He was probably pretty wealthy. He was successful. And they were wealthy if you were a part of the Sanhedrin. So we don't know what happened, whether his wife died or in Acts chapter 9 when Paul gave his life to Christ, that his wife said, you know, peace out, I'm done, I don't want to be a part of this, you know, I don't want any kind of relationship with you. And whether, whether Paul tried to reconcile or we don't know what happened, but we know that Paul was single and he said, I have the right to get married, but God has a higher calling right now for me and that's in missions. And I'm going around and I'm planting churches, I'm doing this, but I have the right, I have the freedom but also have a responsibility to be obedient to God. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. I mean, the law said, you know, you don't put a muzzle over the ox and don't let the ox eat while it's treading. Otherwise, the ox is going to die. And you're not going to have an ox. You know, I mean, you've got to let the ox eat. You've got to take care of the ox so that it gets stronger, right? Is this about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much to reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I did not, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging a trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it for free of charge, and so that and so not to make use of my rights in preaching it. Paul was saying this, guys, when I go to church to church, I could take a love offering, right? When I go to church to church, I could take a love offering and say, hey, you guys, I want you to support me, support my ministry. I want you to do that. Back in the Old Testament, God established, right? He had priests, he had Levites. Take care of the priests and the Levites at the temple. When you come to the New Testament, take care of the pastoral staff and the leaders of the church. You need them in the church. But there was also these missionaries, these evangelists that would go from place to place. We still have people like that today. And Paul says, I could have easily asked you, church, for support. But I didn't. Why? 
Well, we don't know if Paul was still using the finances that he had from back in the day when he was, you know, part of the Sanhedrin. We know that he was a tent maker. He was raising funds. But Paul says, I had the freedom to do that, but I didn't want that to be a stumbling block. I didn't want you to think that I was coming to the church and staying with you and teaching about Jesus because I wanted you to give me a free will offering. So I just said, hey, I'm not going to take one. And I was moving from place to place. Although I had the freedom, right? I had the freedom. The Holy Spirit convicted me and I had the responsibility to love you even more. And I didn't want that to be a stumbling block. That was powerful. And then he goes on and says, the reason for all this is to share the love of Christ. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. So as to... When those not having the law. What's he talking about? Well, if you go back and read the book of Acts. Remember, Paul was Jewish, right? So those, when he would speak to a Jewish audience and he would preach a Jewish sermon, he would start in the Old Testament. And he would say, look at how God has blessed. And God was bringing the Messiah. And the fulfillment of the law, of the promise, is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When he was preaching to a Gentile audience, to a Greek audience, he would say, hey, you're all about knowledge. And you have like a, a, an idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you who that unknown God is, right? He wouldn't go back to the Jewish law. He would talk about a relationship with God through love. And so he's saying, you know, you look around and you say, okay, how can God use me in the setting that I'm in? To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul says, the reason is love. I wanted you to know that you're loved. I read an article this week. It was in ESPN magazine. And it was about a guy named Dean Eskew. And Dean was a pastor of some rural churches around. And he started hearing reports. He, he was hearing reports about Major League Baseball umpires. And he was reading and researching about how many um, Major League umpires, you know, end up depressed or committing suicide. And just because it's such a thankless job. I mean, you know, nobody ever goes out there and goes, way to go, ump, good game. You know, you called a great game. I mean, what are they, everybody's yelling at umpires all the time. Yelling, yelling at every, you know, one side hates them, the other side, you know, is like good call, bad call. I mean, they can't win. And so Dean just decided, well, maybe I could step in there. And the Holy Spirit was saying, you know, help these people. And so Dean started a ministry called Calling for Christ. And he would go around and he would start to meet with these umpires. Here's the deal about Dean. Dean doesn't even like baseball. He said it's boring. He says nine innings is forever. I can't even stand it. But he says, I love the men. I love the people that are there and I love their families. Dean Eskew has baptized 66 Major League Baseball umpires. 66 umpires that have been baptized from minor league umpires to major league umpires because a guy just said, I see a need and I love them and I want to share the love of Christ. He goes to hospitals, check on their families. He stands in the gap for them. And the fact is this, all of us, all of us have a sphere of influence. And God says the predominant value of your life ought to be to love me and to love the people around you. To love your family, your extended family. And God's put you, some of you will be going to family reunions, you know, and being able to, to love them well. 
You know, to, to be in your workplace and to say, hey, maybe I don't even like accounting, but somehow I can speak accounting because God's put me here in this place and I can share the love of Christ with people around me who do love accounting. How that works, I don't know. But they do and they love and you want to love them. And God puts you in different places. God gives you a sphere of influence and God wants to use you. The value of your life then isn't just pursuing money or success or power or fame. The value of your life becomes love. And so Paul concludes in chapter 9, and it's so good. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Back then the Olympics were happening, and in Corinth, uh, every other year they would have the Corinthian Games, which were kind of like the world championships, so they had big stadiums and people would come all over to watch. And so people knew this. Paul loved to use athletic examples. And he's like, don't you know in a race all the runners run to get the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. He's like, in your Christian life, don't make Jesus an add-on. Don't just kind of go, you know what, I'm pursuing money, I'm pursuing career, I'm pursuing family, I'm pursuing this. Oh, and I got a little bit of Jesus over here. He goes, no, 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 no. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Be passionate about your relationship with the Lord. Be involved, be engaged. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Isn't that true? I mean, you look at Olympic athletes today, and man, they're in strict training, aren't they? I mean, they they go to bed at a certain time, they know what they're going to eat. Everything they think about in their mind is going to prepare them for that race. Right? He says they go into strict training. And listen, he says, and they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. You know, they do all this work to run this race to get a crown that won't last. Right? They used to get a wreath that would go around their head and be dead in three days. But, But it still happens today, right? All the work, all the hard work and the preparation and could somebody tell me who won in 2012 in the Olympics, the 1,500 meters? What about 1908? Anybody remember who won the hurdles? Back, back, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it, the Bible says, to get a crown that will last forever. Anybody remember when your child was baptized? Anybody remember the first time you prayed with your spouse? Anybody remember watching your mom or your dad on their knees praying? Or anybody remember going on your first mission trip or the first time that you felt God move in your life? Yeah, you remember that, don't you? That's going to last forever. <laughs> That's going to last forever. He says, therefore, I do not run, run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. You know what he says? He says, live your life with purpose. Live your life as a Christian with purpose. It it takes discipline, right? To read God's word, to grow in your, your relationship with him. It takes focus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It takes faithfulness not to quit the race, but to run the race with endurance. The race set out for you. He says, no, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, I'm in it, man. I'm in it to win it. I'm going all in. I want to live a life of love. Does it mean he's going to be disqualified from the prize that he won't get into heaven? No, 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 no. You can't lose your salvation. Right? As God draws you to himself and invites you into this relationship with him, you are his. And the Bible says nothing can snatch you out of his hand. You are eternally his. But it does mean one day we'll stand before God and we'll have to give an account of our lives. What did you do with what you were given? 
Did you build your kingdom or did you build God's kingdom? Did you make a difference in your day and your generation for the glory of God? Next week we'll unpack chapter 10, but in chapter 10, verse 31, Paul kind of sums up this whole argument about eating food to idols. He says it this way. He says, so whether you eat food to idols or you don't eat, whether you drink or you don't drink, he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. Don't just compartmentalize your faith. Do everything in your life for God's name and for God's glory. So, what's the dominant principle of your life? If you were to look at your checkbook or your calendar, if you were to look at where you spend your time or your money, if you were to look at what dominates your thoughts, what, what's the dominant principle of your life? Is it God? Is it love? Because there's a God who says, I love you. And I want to use you for my glory. Just trust me. Follow me. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus said, I want you to enjoy life. And as you live, just live this life of love. Watch me use you in ways you've never dreamed or never imagined. Because you are mine. I want to pray over you. I'm going to invite our worship team to come. And and I want to ask you if you would just kind of open your hands to God. Just kind of open your hands. You know, so many times we've kind of closed in everything we have and we're tense up. But but when we pray, would you just open your hands to God? Our worship team is going to come and lead us in a time of response. But let me just pray for us right now. Father God, I just thank you for my... my brothers and sisters in Christ, for my friends who are here. I thank you, Father... God, that you are present. I thank you, God, that you love us more than we even love ourselves. That you are for us. That you want us to have a great relationships. You want us to have a great marriage. You want us to, to grow in our relationship with you. And so, Father, this morning, we just come and dedicate our lives to you. Father, I pray if there's areas in our lives, God, where where we've compromised. I pray if there's areas in our lives, God, where your Holy Spirit is convicting us, Father, that, that God, you would give us the responsibility. We know we have the freedom because of grace, but God, just allow us to understand the responsibility that we have. And Father, I pray for those who are parents who are, who are raising kids or grandparents, Father, just that, that you would be so present in our lives that that our faith and our love would be contagious to those who come behind us. I pray for every one of us in our sphere of influence, God, that we would live a life of love. That we wouldn't be legalistic or judgmental, but God, we would be people full of grace and people full of mercy and people who love well the people around us. And so, Lord, we open our hands to you. We open our lives to you, God. We open our hearts to you. Come today, fill us with your grace. Consume us with your love. Because God, we are yours.